Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 134. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today we talk about two technologies unfamiliar to both Paul and I, electrical resistivity tomography and ambient noise tomography. Let's get to it. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast. Paul, welcome to the show. How's it going? It's going okay. My voice is probably going to drop out any minute, though. I've been on Zoom calls all day and... uh... (laughs) Oh boy, my throat is thrashed from this, but we're doing okay, you know, dealing with COVID and plans for school and everything. How have you been? Not too bad. Man, I should probably move this recording off of Tuesdays like we do. With Tuesdays, I usually have Zoom calls from about 9 a.m. until right before this call. So it's always a rough day for me. But yeah, this is usually the the last podcast. Although I do one more podcast. Hey, we have a rock art podcast now. If you're interested in rock art, that's the one I'm recording after this. It's a weekly show and it comes out on Fridays with Dr. Alan Garfinkel. So check that out. It's a great show. Lots of great guests and talking about different things. So, but for now, we're going to go down to Mexico and talk about Teotihuacan, which is just something that's really cool. People who are familiar with archaeology or took any sort of archaeology class have probably heard of Teotihuacan in, in one way or another. It was probably on the cover of your textbook, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It probably was. So I'm going to bring on two people to talk about some research at Teotihuacan, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce their names. We have Denise Argot and Andres Tejero. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Hi, Paul. Hi, Chris. Hi. <laughs> Hi, welcome. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks very much. Why don't we set the stage here right now? You guys are down in Mexico as we're recording this, but why don't you tell people that may not be familiar where Teotihuacan is exactly and and a little, maybe a little bit about the culture that created Teotihuacan so we can set the stage. Okay, well, if you ever been to Mexico City, Teotihuacan is around one hour from Mexico City at north. It's really okay. near, so almost everyone that goes to Mexico City has visited Teotihuacan. This is a, mm-hmm. a great Hispanic city. It was built between 100 before Christ and was abandoned around 700 D.C., uh, after Christ. So okay. it was a, a really big city. It's around uh, 45 uh, acres, just the ceremonial center, the religious center, uh, but the cities go beyond that that area. So it was really big, it was filled with people from many areas, from the Mayan area, from Oaxaca, from the Mexican Gulf, and from the center of Mexico, and even from uh, Occident, uh, that, that will be the coast of the Pacific Ocean here in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So there were people from everywhere. Can you imagine? It was a big metropolis. It was around when around 300 after Christ, there were around 200,000 people living there. Wow. Yeah, so amazing. That, it's wow. really one of the world's great urban centers. Exactly. Yeah. In this city, there are three famous monuments because because are the biggest, the largest, and the tallest. Mm-hmm. The known pyramid of the sun, the pyramid of the moon, and the pyramid of the feathered serpent. The biggest one, the tallest one, is the pyramid of the sun, then the pyramid of the moon, and then the other one, the feathered serpent. All of these pyramids were in different areas, sectors of the city, and they were used for different purposes. For example, the Pyramid of the Sun and the Feathered Serpent were closed with walls. So not everybody could get could get in the area of the pyramid. But the Pyramid mm-hmm. of the Moon is in an open area. So there is an avenue called the Avenue of the Dead that crosses from south to north. All the city is around two kilometers. And it was used for peregrinations 
for ceremonial getaways, uh, how can I tell, uh, festivities. <laughs> so people mm -hmm. walk uh -huh. in processions from south to north until they get to the Pyramid of the Moon. The Pyramid of the Moon was like an image of a mountain, of a sacred mountain. In ancient times, the world, humankind was created in a sacred mountain. This pyramid, the Pyramid of the Moon, was the image of the sacred mountain that represents the origin of mankind, right? So it okay. has a special meaning, a symbolic meaning from the world vision of ancient people. Who built the Tiwakan? Well, that's a, a question that we have. <laughs> there is no real answer yet. We can only tell that people from all around Mexico, uh, the actual country, was living there and that it has a great power all around Mesoamerica. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can find influences of Teotihuacan to, uh, to Honduras. I mean, Hmm. Way far. Mm -hmm. Right. So you can imagine the power and the distribution of their products, of their world vision, of their political power, even military power. So, well, okay. I mean, I, I really, I really love the city. It's, it's great. It's mm -hmm. fantastic. You know, before we get into it, just real quick, so with Teotihuacan being, I mean, practically in Mexico City, you know, really close, mm -hmm. has that area since Teotihuacan was built, has it always been a center of population like that? Because I know you said it fell into like disuse around a certain time, but clearly with Mexico City there, it became another powerful urban center at some point. So has there always been people there and it just kind of ebbed and flowed like that? Or was there a long period of time before what became Mexico City was there? Well, it was some time. I mean, for example, what is now Mexico City in ancient times was Tenochtitlan. You know, the Aztec oh, right. okay. and the Mexica yeah. were the ones that built that city in the middle of a lake, you know, that's a yeah. big deal. Yeah. Uh, I mean, constructively or architectonically speaking. So the Mexicas and Aztecs were, were around 1,200 after Christ, and the Tihuacan okay. was gone in 700. So it's like around five centuries of difference. Mm. Mm -hmm. Right. Teotihuacan okay. was uh, abandoned, as I told you, around 700 after Christ, and there were no other settlements in this city or using this city. It was totally abandoned. It was even burned, mm -hmm. especially the administrative buildings. It, they were burned. It was kind of a civil war. Mm -hmm. So wow. it was abandoned okay. and not used again. And the Mexicas came way after and settled in the middle of the lake near near Teotihuacan, but not in this area. Gotcha. Okay. So Teotihuacan has been studied archaeologically for decades, for most of 100 years. And most of the studies of it that I'm aware of have focused especially on that ceremonial center, though it's certainly a, a, such an urban city. It's got very interesting domestic architecture, too. Do you want to talk about your project, which was focused directly there on that ceremonial center? Of course. I've been working with another archaeologist called Veronica Ortega. She's also in the, in the article wrote. Um, we were talking one day about the possibility of a cave, because maybe you have read something or seen something in Pyramid of the Sun and the Feather Temple. There are two caves beneath them. And in the Pyramid of the Moon, well, nothing happened. There was nothing, no, not an event that could tell us that something was beneath this pyramid. So uh, Veronica and I were talking about the possibility, and I told her that I have some friends in uh, the university, the National University of Mexico, in the Faculty of Engineering, that have these special techniques, uh, geophysical techniques, that could help us to detect the cave. If there was a cave, if there was really something, we could detect it without altering the context, without making holes all around and destroying the context. We can do this search, the survey, with these non-invasive geophysical techniques. 
And that's when I call Andres and the other guys. And we made this project specifically to find out, to detect if there was anything like a cave or a tunnel beneath the pyramid of the moon. That's how it started. So let's let's back up a little bit then, because I want to talk about that this is a technology podcast after all. So you mentioned at the very least in the abstract for this article that you guys wrote, which we will link to the URL where the article is on Science Direct in the show notes. But you mentioned ERT and ANT. Can you tell me what those are, what that stands for? Because they weren't terms I was familiar with, at least the acronym. So ERT and ANT, and then how those are used. Okay, Andres, your part. Uh, okay. <laughs> Well, electrical resistivity tomography ERT methods okay. is like or similar to a medical tomography, mm-hmm. uh, but in this case, uh, in this electrical tomography, copper uh, copper electrodes are buried around, for example, the pyramid of the moon. Then a large amount of potential difference. Data is collected, which allow finding the distribution of resistivity beneath the moon's pyramids. A structure is defined by the resistivity value found during inversion of data. More or less, that, that is electrical tomography. And the other methods where we needed to use was the ambient noise tomography. It's a, a seismic technique. More or less, it's the same. A lot of geophones is displayed around the, the pyramid in the same patterns that the copper electrodes. Mm-hmm. And we need to use this technique because ERT is unable to discover between a solid structures and an empty cavity. Since both electrical anomalies are similar, giving high values of resistivity. The studio carried out by Dr. Martin Cárdenas and another of the co-actors of the article, ambient noise tomography, detect of zone of low velocity, which match in direction and position with the resistivity anomaly. Hmm. This low velocity anomaly is indeed associated with a cavity. That with this uh, combining both studies, there is no dose that we are talking about a cavity uh, beneath the moon pyramid. Okay. Wow. That's really cool. Basically using two different, slightly similar techniques to really define what you're looking for where they cross. That's really cool. So I also want to know why, and we might not know the answer to this question, but you were specifically looking for a cave beneath this structure because there are caves beneath the other structures. And I'm wondering, man, do we have any idea why they may have tried to build these things on top of these caves? Because if you're looking for these subsurfacely, it probably means there's no access to that cave, right? Unless there's some sort of internal access that's been blocked off over time or just hasn't been found yet. But there's clearly some sort of space or cavity under there. So if we can't see that or know it, how did the people that live there know that there was a cave there if they built a structure on top of it? Yeah, well, um, with the study we made in the faces of the moon, <laughs> it looks like sun, but no. We found we found that there is a kind of an axis, an artificial axis made man-made in the east side. Uh, mm-hmm. if you see the article, if you read it, you can see some of the images. And it seems like someone make a hole, artificial hole, a tunnel in the eastern side. And it's possible because if you look at the other tunnels in the other two pyramids, the, ton- the access tunnels are also in an east-west direction that is very closely related to this worldview of uh, where the sun comes out, where the, the life comes out, you know, in the east mm-hmm. and where the sun dies in the west. So this east-west axis has this special meaning, this magical meaning, we'll, we'll say. So it's uh, it's kind of a pattern. It's a mm. repetitive ca- pattern that you can see in both, uh, well, in the three pyramids, actually. No, this axis in the east and west axis. With our metals, with the electric tomography, we found, ca- casually, <laughs> 
an axis in the east face of the pyramid of the moon. So there was mm. an axis. So they were, there is probably material buried beneath the pyramid in this cavity. And it will be great that at uh, some point in time, we can make some excavations and find out what's inside. Why? Because there is material that could make us know in what time was opened, in what time it was mostly used, which people, which culture was the one um, managing this area. As I told you, the, the city is uh, divided in sectors. And in each sector, you found preferential material from one culture, let's say Monte Alban or the Mayan, the Mayan area, right? So it will tell us a lot about the origin of this city even, because if we say, we believe that the pyramid, the point where the pyramid was built is over a natural cave, could mm -hmm. point out that it was the initial point, the starting stone, like uh, sort of say, of the construction yeah. of the city. It will be very important to, uh, in the future, make some excavations and find out what kind of material we have in there and, well, get some conclusions about about this city and, and specifically about this sector. Okay. All right. Well, I think on that note, we will take our first break and then come back and continue talking about caves and detecting caves on the other side of the break on this episode of the Architect Podcast. Back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C. C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months, or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code Archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Hi, welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 134. Today we're talking with Andres Tejero and Denise Argot. We're discussing work that they did recently, Teotihuacan, do, using uh, subsurface survey techniques in and around the Pyramid of the Moon at Teotihuacan. This is probably a question for you, Andres. Could you explain for us what the survey technique was like, how you set it up? I'm very curious about, in particular, looking at your article, it looks like you're getting resolution down 30, 40 meters below surface. And I'm very curious how that works with non-invasive techniques. Yeah, it's a lot of power. Well, this technique is an special knowing, but we call it non-invasive techniques. We have not disturbed the, the archaeological place we, mm -hmm. we, are, we are working. Actually, the depth that we can reach for this depends on what is the space in between the line, for example, each, each side of the, each side of the, of the moon, for example. We put uh, electrodes in the eastern side of the pyramid of the moon. And western side, and we sense a current to the ground from eastern side, and we are receiving a differential potentials in the east side. Mm -hmm. Well, that distance, that is the largest dimension of the pyramids, we are reaching a thirty meter, a theoretical depth of thirty meters, more or less. This, this technique has some problems also. This technique ha, has a very high lateral re resolutions. 
but it's very it has very poor sensitivity in the vertical mm -hmm. uh, directions. Then we can make or we can have some error in the depth to the structure that we are looking for, more uh, more or less. But but we are uh, right in detecting the the structure. More or less, that is the problem with with these techniques. But we can see actually the, the structures. The uh, the other technique we are using for was the two dimension electrical resistivity tomography in the eastern side and the north side. But this is uh, a very common technique used in electrical tomography. That was to find out the possible tunnels or access to the pyramid of the of, of the moon, following the possible patterns of of tunnel in in the archaeological zones of Teotihuacan, that the tunnels run from east to west, uh, more or less, uh, at least in in Sun's um, pyramid, is that the way that that the tunnels run. What's the, what's the reason? Hmm. But as Denise uh, says, I believe in the north side, we have another possible ac access. That is the reason to, to make the others uh, profiles to the electrical resistivity tomography in the north side of, of the pyramid of the moon. But we don't found nothing. <laughs> Actually, well, not a, an, a clear access in the north side, but the tomography uh, show Bene, the, the pyramid of the moon, show a possible access in that part, in, in the north side. But we can confirm or, or, or to say that, that actually it's, uh, there is an access from the north side. More or less, mm. that, that is the, the electrical resistivity tomography. Meds is more or less cheaper, take a lot of time, more or less two or three days in, in making and collecting all the data. We had to process data in order to clean data from noise mm, uh, right. to prepare it. It's, uh, it's more or less cumbersome to, to make all the process. Yeah. I mean, it took around a week, the two surveys in the field, and it took around a year and a half to process the data. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> That's a lot of data. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, just looking at some of the conclusions from this, you know, as we're starting to round out the middle of this segment, is this area full of tunnels? Like, are there caves and tunnels and things like that under this whole area? And possibly, are you coming to the conclusion that these building sites were chosen for these particular pyramids because of the tunnels east-west orientation and the ritual and, and religious significance that that holds? Mm. Yeah. Or are these the only tunnels in the area? I believe that there are two explanations that both are related. There have been mm -hmm. other tunnels that have been found in the northern area of the city that were sites to retrieve or to have construction materials. You know, uh, mm -hmm. like uh, sources, like deposits, natural deposits, where you can just take uh, raw material to use it for the construction of the city. There are some examples of this and there are some publications that show this uh, this fact. But there are some other tunnels and caves that were used ritually. I mean, in the case of the other two pyramids, the sun and the feathered serpent, it was artificial tunnels. There were artificial tunnels. There were man oh, okay. They were not natural. So they were made right. on purpose for, for some symbolic meaning. I mean, in in the sun, in the tunnel of the sun, uh, there was nothing. There was no material because it was all taken <laughs> before the archaeologists could <laughs> get in. Uh, in the case of the the feathered serpent, it was a sealed tunnel, so it was very rich in material, in archaeological material. A lot of mm -hmm. things, beautiful things, came out of there. In the case of the moon, it's probably sealed too. It's also a sealed tunnel and cave. The tunnel, the access tunnel is probably man-made 
but the cave mm -hmm. it seems to be natural i mean it's bigger than the other caves that we have found and it doesn't have a regular shape like the other ones and in the case of the sun mm -hmm. it's like a four petaled flower is i mean that's not natural it was man-made in the case of the feathered serpent, it's more like uh, boxes. It's also an artificial okay. shape, a, a man-made shape. But in the case of the moon, it has a very particular irregular shape. That's around 50 meters di diameter. So it seems quite natural. That's the difference wow. between these tunnels. You know, yeah. uh, most of the tunnels and caves we found are excavated by men, but this one in particular seems natural. That's okay. why the conclusion, the conclusions we have from it, are different, are are mm -hmm. significant. So you've just detected this through these means, through these tomography means. Uh, do you have? plans for gaining access to this tunnel anytime soon or have you gained access to it since you wrote the article uh, like is anybody going inside just to see what's in there and what it looks like <laughs> i'm sure you really want to <laughs> we cannot do just that <laughs> you know yeah, yeah of course <laughs> we had to make yeah. a, a project and systematic excavations that are usually of, uh, slow and you need financial a, resources. Uh, and with the pandemic and all, I don't to, think to there the, are anyone uh, investing <laughs> in this kind of projects right now. But I really hope that with all the diffusion and uh, all that has uh, been going out uh, these days and, and this month, well, someone in, in, in the government on so on, or maybe some of our institutions in a few years could have the financial resources to support an excavation. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was wondering really was were there plans in the future? I mean, I'm sure you guys would love to get down and see what's in there, but were there project plans or any funding? So hopefully you can do that because it sounds like presumably the other, you guys know what was found in the others. So those have been at least partially excavated or explored. So mm -hmm. that's really cool. What new, or are you guys looking at any new technology or anything else that hasn't been used in there that you'd like to apply to some of this research or some of the things you guys were looking at to use down here? Well, I mean, for once, the tomography that Andres and, and the people in the faculty are employing is really innovative. Mm -hmm. It's non-conventional. There are not even... Yeah software uh, adequate software to process the data i mean that's why he took uh, more than a year to process the data there are no sure. software to process this kind of arrays so this is very new and uh, i don't know for me it's fascinating and the other yeah. the the seismic noise the ant it has been never used before in mm. an archaeological site so, so i mean right <laughs> what new you want? <laughs> Do you see these tools being used broader in other kinds of archaeological projects on other sites? Mm. Only we have used this kind of arrays. I mean, I know electric tomography has been using some other archaeological places and historical places, but the way that Andres and the people in Dunam use it is quite different and has only been employed by our team in archaeological site. Mm. Andreas, how did you yeah. find out about these techniques? Where did they come from? Like what, what industry did these get developed in and how did you become aware of using these in order to try them out here? Well, this technique uh, came out because the problem that we have in Mexico City. Uh, Mexico City have a lot of problems, for example, to the wet side of the city, we had a, a, a subductions of houses, mm. Uh, mm. buildings and something like that. And we, we need to, to explore that structure to, to know how, how is, uh, how it is absorbed, what, what is happening, mm. that, that structures. In order to find out an, an answer to, to that problems, we developed that, these techniques, especially for urban uh, zones. 
it's very, it's very difficult to do an electrical resistivity tomography in the traditional traditional ways in in a city. It's very hard, and this technique mm-hmm. is more or less possible to to make an electrical resistivity tomography in, in large cities like Mexico's. Mexico City. Uh, this technique then we thought one day, also Denise was present, uh, to to try to to explore in archaeological sites. See, we, we can see below buildings, why not below archaeological uh, buildings? That is the reason that we then start to apply these techniques in archaeological songs. And the first archaeological songs was also Denise working on, was, was through Denise what we worked in that site was in Panu, uh, Panu site. But it's the same technique also that, and the same group, the same team, Denise, myself and others, uh, Geophysical Institute, and this apply in Chichen Itza uh, archaeological site also. It's the same technique. And we have a good results uh, exploring in, in Chichen Itza. And that was the, the reason also to use in, in this uh, in Teotihuacan, due to the, the needs, uh, needs to explore that, that site uh, also. More or less is the, is the, his, uh, the story about this technique, uh, how how it came out to to a light. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm just uh, just processing it all. This is so it's amazing. I just how all this comes together. I really like it. And and hearing about these two techniques, you're right. I mean, they are. Paul and I talked to a lot of people about different techniques and things in archaeology and different technologies they've used. And I've literally never heard of ANT for sure. Resistivity testing we've heard of, but not this electrical resistivity tomography. That's a different. No, I haven't seen. That's a different thing entirely. (laughs) It's always, you know, drive a probe down (laughs) into the ground and do some very basic testing, but this is much more detailed. (laughs) Yeah. So. Right. So (laughs) we are just about out of time here for this segment. So why don't you tell us, I mean, despite funding and we know coronavirus is happening around the world, especially there in Mexico City, as well as it is here in the United States. But despite all that, what are your next research? goals at Teotihuacan, or if you're bringing this technique somewhere else, what are you doing with that? So basically, what are you guys doing next? Hmm. Well, in Teotihuacan, we hope that um, sometime we can get uh, access again to the city, to the site, and mm-hmm. exploring with geophysic techniques, because it's easier, it's quicker, and it's cheaper. Mm-hmm. And we can get a lot of information without expending lots and lots of money and lots and lots of time. Except for Andres, that spends lots and lots of time processing the data, <laughs> right? <laughs> but we can keep on searching and finding more and making a detailed, a more detailed characterization of the tunnels. If there's just one tunnel, what's the length, and spe- specific details that we still need to to find out. But we are also applying these techniques to other archaeological sites in Mexico. For example, in the state of Durango, that is northern Mexico, in La Ferreria, we are also using but magnetometry, also seismic and electric tomography too. And we are also applying these techniques in, in another site in the state of Querétaro called El Rosario, and we're we're having uh, great results too. So there hmm. is a lot of applications we can do. I usually uh, work with my colleagues, with my archaeological colleagues, <laughs> my friends also, because many of them, I know them personally. So I talk to them and I explain to them what we can do with all, all these techniques. And we usually are invited, uh, get invited to go to the sites and, and we're getting really great results. I'm really fan of geophysics and, and geochemical applications. So I am always promoting the, the work. And I mean, Andres is a genius in what he does. 
So I'm always a fan of him. <laughs> well, that's great. It's good to have good collaborators. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So we do appreciate you guys coming on to tell us about this. And I would love to have you back on when you use, well, either when you use this somewhere else and get some new data. Of course, it'll be two years from now because it'll take you that long to process all the data. Am I right, Andres? (laughs) 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 So... But when you do, we're, we'll be more than happy to come on and talk about it. But also keep us surprised of the situation down at the table, Tiwakan. If you get any more projects that get to further investigate what you've done here, we'd love to bring you on to talk about that as well. Thanks again for coming on to the Archaeotech podcast and good luck in the rest of your research. Mm, thanks, Paul. Thanks, Chris, for having us here and, and here is a little bit of what we do. Thanks for doing this. Okay, thanks. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everybody. And Paul and I will be back for the third segment to wrap everything up. So we'll take a break and we'll be back in a minute. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun T-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. All right, welcome back to the Archaeotech podcast. Paul, that was, I mean, we kind of talked about it in the break here, but that was really awesome to see some, some brand new to us techniques. I mean, they've been using this in Mexico City, it sounds like, for a while for these urban areas. But as far as applying it to an archaeological context, not very often that we hear of something brand new being applied. A lot of times, and this is still incredibly valid and incredibly important, but we have people coming on using, I guess, previously or well-known techniques in archaeology and and research to do things, but maybe in new and interesting ways or combining those with other known techniques and using those, that combination of new interesting ways, which is, you know, just part of our toolkit as part of the things we do. But this is something, I mean, completely brand new to both of us and yet has amazing results. So I thought thought that was just a, a fantastic interview. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, I agree with you. It's interesting that when we get the cross-pollination between different fields, uh, which is obviously what's happening here, because there are tools that other fields have developed and used for themselves that you, that I as an archaeologist wouldn't necessarily know about until we find out Mm -hmm. about it. And then, you know, you get the right people, you get somebody that has the knowledge of how to use it, what it's uh, good for, what it's not good for, and then, you know, start adapting these tools then into uh, archaeological use which is um which is really interesting it's it's people that are smarter than i and better clued in (laughs) (laughs) but uh, i'm glad that we get to talk to them here and learn a little about what they're doing and learn about some of these things Uh, and the other thing that they did which is something we've talked about before too is combining different techniques right knowing what the blind spots are of uh, of technique a and then using technique B to uh, to verify, to fill in those holes, to augment it in various ways. Um, and that's something that a lot of people do. And it's nothing new to science. A lot of uh, a lot of practical science works that way. But again, here's two techniques that we weren't familiar with getting applied in a novel manner uh, to answer an archaeological question. Yeah, that's right. And that just shows us how much attention we need to pay to other fields, you know, mm-hmm. in, in in, in flying, when you're, uh, I'm just going to equate this back to flying, when you're in the cockpit and you're a pilot and you're looking down at your instruments, especially students have this problem, right? They say, put take your head out of the cockpit if you can. You know, like if you're in instrument conditions, obviously you're looking at the instruments, but if you're not, students will have a tendency to focus on the GPS, focus on the airspeed indicator, focus on the altitude and things like that, and not actually lift their head up and look around them. And sometimes as archaeologists, we need to lift our heads up and look around us to other industries and other techniques. And a lot of times, especially like in CRM, what I'm doing, we're on construction sites and we're on uh, mining sites and we're on other places doing monitoring where people are using some some pretty advanced techniques to do different things. Uh, you know, I'm just thinking about, not that this is applicable to us, but I'm thinking about like those, you know, bulldozers creating a, a pad or something like that. They all have this highly super sensitive GPS unit on it that is also um, part of a leveling system. And I'm probably combining two different technologies, but they're basically using that to get, I mean, almost millimeter accuracy on the levelness and depth that they need to go to to create these pads. And stuff like that and these other techniques, if we just look around and say, man, how can we actually apply that to archaeology? But you got to pay attention to those things and, and look at it. I'm glad somebody like Andreas was 
paying attention to what was going on in, in Mexico City. And, you know, he had the the foresight to think, well, how, how can I use that? And then a problem arose and they're like, well, let's try it on this. And sure enough, it was uh, incredibly successful. So I think the, the one thing I would want to know, because I don't I don't think if he said it, I didn't really get it. But one thing I would want to get from this is, and, and maybe it's in the deep um, recesses of the paper, but if they're getting resolution with this resistivity technique, the ERT one, down, like you said, what is it, 30 to 50 meters or something like that? Yeah, at least 30 it, meters in, uh, in the charts. Of yeah. That. I mean, that is some serious electrical power, I would think, to get through that. Usually that equates to power. It's like radio signals, right? The further you go, the more power you need to send that. I, I would imagine it's a very similar thing to this in that a lot of power has to be injected into these probes in order to get that sort of depth through what's presumably rock, uh, you know, dense rock. So that, that'd be an interesting thing to know too. A lot of computing power too to, uh, to process all that, which of course is what they were talking about, <laughs> cleaning it up, yeah. getting rid of the noise. Yeah. You know, one of the other things about well, and, uh, yeah. these combining techniques and uh, and cross pollination between different uh, disciplines, you know, we've been talking about answering questions. Hey, is there a, a cave under here? Mm -hmm. Hey, look, it looks like there probably is, but it also helps you <laughs> ask questions, good questions, or opens up what kinds of questions you could ask that you previously couldn't ask because you didn't have a good way of answering. So, um, you know, that's another right. uh, nice side effect of these things. Yeah, indeed. So, well, I think I, I would just like to say to anybody listening to this, hey, uh, please contact Andreas. I'm not going to say his last name again. But contact Andreas and, and Denise and uh, Tejero. Andreas Tejero. There you go. And and Denise Argot. And through the, we don't have their contact information in the show notes, but we do link to the paper in the show notes. And through the paper, you can get to their academic uh, emails. So, but please, I'm sure they'd be more than happy to answer questions about that. They mentioned that in the last segment and uh, and spreading this out to to other areas where it can be used. I'm wondering how how this could be used on uh, like Native American mound sites mm -hmm. in uh, like the Ohio Valley and things like that, because I know a lot of GPR is done on those things. But GPR does have its limitations and combining and this has its limitations too, but like they combined the ERT and the, and then the ambient noise tomography, the ANT with it, combining GPR with probably one or both of these techniques. It sounds like it could paint a pretty good picture of what some of these mounds look like, because we're, we're more than likely never going to excavate most of these because they're highly protected. Right. And as well, we shouldn't, but if we can do a non-destructive subsurface technique like that and, and see what's in there in order to study it, of course, taking native American concerns into account, that would be fascinating. That's that's one of the uses I can think of for it. Yeah, and I was thinking about uh, if there's any way to use this on a on a tell site. <laughs> so uh, I guess oh, we're yeah. all uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> thinking about our <laughs> regional specialties, huh? See, this is what I'm hoping listeners get out of this too. They're thinking, how can I use this on my site? You know, I, I don't know what this equipment costs, but but definitely these guys have the uh, have the knowledge of how to use it and uh, and how to process the data. And I'm sure that both processes will just get quicker and quicker as as more people use it and and get uh, get good data sets. I'm willing to bet that the data processing took so long, not just from a, a the quantity of the data standpoint. But the newness of it, right? Like he probably had some some data as to what a subsurface structure looks like and how to interpret this data because that's essentially what they were using it for in Mexico City. But but the more the people use it for archaeology, the more you have a, a comparison of the data. And you could say, I mean, that's how GPR works, right? You know what things look like because of the patterns. And this is no different, more than likely. So as more and more people use this and we add to the data set and that's accessible on how to do this, it'll be probably easier and quicker to interpret the data. So, you know, with, with maybe less processing required to, to actually clean up the noise. So, or at least... And it, putting in some algorithms into the computer programs that can clean up that noise a little quicker because we know what noise is and it's not, it's a little less hands on. So anyway, that would be really cool. So yeah, contact them, contact us. If not, we'll, we'll put you in touch with them because uh, we do have email addresses uh, of them, but we just, we just haven't put them in the show notes. So, so we prefer people to contact through the official channels in the paper. But uh, anyway, so I think that's it for that. Paul, I just wanted to mention one thing. We don't really have an app of the day segment, but I've talked about the Copilot GPS app, uh, I think a couple times uh, on this show. I did a review mm -hmm. of it and then we used it and I did another review. But I'll tell you what, we've only had to move our RV a few times because we've been staying a week or two weeks at a time at different places. But 
each time we do, we use this application. And I'll tell you what, it's got some some pretty severe limitations that are really sort of irritating me. And I'm, I'm going to be on the hunt for something else that has these RV size restrictions in it and adheres to those on the map. Because one of the things it does, like, for example, we were at a location on Saturday we were heading up to another location and we were just looking on Apple Maps and it gave us a couple different options, right? And one option was probably just according to Apple, it was about 30 minutes longer than the other option as far as the drive goes, but it still showed us the other option. And we were all set to drive that that actually the longer route because it was a route that we hadn't taken yet and it was just seen more scenic and we just wanted to go that way, right? We weren't in that much of a hurry. So we get in the RV, we get all packed up and we're faced in the right direction on the road. And then we pull it up on the Copilot GPS and it's not even giving us that option. Like it's not even there. It's only giving us the other route that was quicker. And the thing I don't know is, was it doing that because there was some sort of obstruction or low bridge or um, weight restriction that we were going to um, exceed with the RV, which is why it didn't offer up that other route? Or was it simply it didn't... it it the threshold for distance was too long. Like it wasn't going to offer us a route that was 30 minutes longer than this route, but maybe it would have if it were 15 minutes or 10 minutes or something like that. Cause it has offered alternate routes in the past, right? When they're closer in time, but it's not mm-hmm. giving us any sort of reason. If the reason is it's just too long, I just need to know what that threshold is fine. But if it's not giving us another route because X, I, I feel like I want to know that. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, right. I want to know what's what's causing it to make that decision. But then I guess where does that end? Is it going to give us why it's not going to tell us all the possible routes? I mean, there's there's you know potentially hundreds of ways you could get to one location. I don't really know. It, it, the other thing is the tablet that I'm using this on is not typically connected to the internet. And this is a Trimble created application and it gets real mad at you. It'll let you use it if you're not logged in, but it says allow enable access for one day or enable access for two days or something like that without logging in. So it'll let you use it, but you got to log in once every day or two in order for it to recheck its license. And I'm like, man, I bought this through the app store. You should just have an internal clock and know that I have license to use it and stop irritating me. (laughs) No, Trimble's not going to do that. Trimble's definitely not going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Those are my two big complaints. Otherwise, uh, I guess the other one, I I do have one third complaint, which is the search functionality. It's absolute garbage. If you don't download the maps for offline use, you can't actually search in the state. So Because we were in Oregon, I think, and I, I didn't have Washington downloaded. So it wouldn't even find an address, even though I had it online. Like it was, it was connected to the internet. Wouldn't even find the address until I went and downloaded Washington to the tablet. And I'm like, Weird. really? You, you wouldn't even search for it? Like that's a basic map function. And, and it wouldn't even do it. But, you know, the biggest reason we're still using it is that hopefully it prevents us from scraping off the top two feet of our RV when we go under too low of a bridge. And I guess that's worth it in the end. I'm just you nodding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I already told yeah. you my story about uh, driving a truck <laughs> where I shouldn't have because of the GPS. So, uh, yeah, I'm just shivering. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I showed my I showed my wife a picture. Some RV group we belonged to on Facebook. Somebody put a picture in there of they they had clearly already backed the RV up, but the it was probably a 40 foot Class A, and you could see the inside of the front half of it because oh. they, they it really was the bridge was probably two feet too low not just scraped off the air conditioners it really did destroy the entire like half of the RV they must have been moving too they hit that bridge and it went down probably 20 feet of that RV and just scraped off the top the top two feet of that whole thing all the way mm-hmm. back and it was like oh my god that's like my worst nightmare right there so so don't do that I know. Well, I haven't even actually gotten out and measured to the top of this thing. I'm going off the manufacturer's specifications. And I'm like, you know, sometimes it comes down to the inch because we're 12 feet, nine inches, according to the manufacturer, to the top of the air conditioner. Wow. And some of these bridges are like 13, five. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, that's a little close. <laughs> so anyway, that's all I've got for that. If you've used an application that could help me out, please let me know in the comments to this episode or send us an email. And I'll, and I'll take a look at it. So, all right. Anything else, Paul? No, that's pretty much it. Just uh, wash your hands. Oh, and wear a mask. <laughs> and socially distance. And wear a mask. <laughs> Let's stop this already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. So, hey, I just want to put one more plug out there. 
we had a, a tragedy in the archaeology community in Nevada. And uh, I just want to say, you know, I put this out to all our hosts of the show. But if you're having any sort of issues, I mean, feel free to contact us, even if it's this is what I told to our host at the APN. I was like, sometimes you just don't want to talk about your personal problems. And I get that. But sometimes you just want to talk to another human being. So make something up. Send us an email. We'll respond to it and and just, you know, have some human interaction. I think that's causing a lot of people some stress these days is the the lack of human interaction. So if you're listening to this, if you're hearing our voices, feel free to just just send us a quick email and say, hey, I was uh, thinking about this. What do you guys think about that? We're, we're more than happy to chat through that interface and just, you know, keep the conversation going. So, OK, that's all I've got. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Paul, for joining. And we'll see you guys in two weeks. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Bro.